again, Friendship Church. It's so great to have you here today. Uh, it's so good to be back. I wasn't here last week because I was in the suburbs of Chicago celebrating my daughter's graduation from college. Uh, when I said I was going to go do that two weeks ago at the end of this service, uh, you all clapped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. And uh, Kyle Whitmore came up to me after the service and he said, you recognize they're all clapping because you're not going to be here, not because your daughter is graduating from college. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. What is the saying with friends like that? Mm. <laughs> so we were in the suburbs of Chicago last weekend. And I tried to find a place for us to eat dinner in the suburb of Chicago called Oaklawn. So I went to Google Maps and I typed restaurants in Oaklawn in and began to look through the list of restaurants that were there until I found one that had a high rating and the pictures looked delicious and I said, we are going there. I was so pumped and so excited. And then I looked at where it was on the map and I'm like, I don't know where this is. Didn't recognize any of the cross streets. Couldn't figure out where it was in relationship to our hotel. So I zoomed out a little bit. And you guys, I still could not tell where it was. I, I didn't know how to get there from our hotel. I didn't recognize, again, the location of where that restaurant was. And so I zoomed out a lot. And it was at that point that I realized the book of that I was looking at Oak Lawn the area in Dallas, Texas, <laughs> not Oaklawn, the suburb of Chicago. That would have been a long drive for some dinner. Sometimes it is super helpful to zoom out in order to figure out where you are and what's going on. And that's really what we're doing in this sermon series called The First Five. Normally when we come here, we will study a passage of Scripture and we will focus in on the beauty of the tree. But during this sermon series, we are zooming out and we are looking, instead of just at the tree, at an entire chunk of the forest. Looking at an entire book of the Bible in a single Sunday in order to see how it fits with the big Bible story and with Jesus. Last week, uh, Thomas Gold did such a great job of helping us see Jesus in the book of Genesis. And now over the next two weeks, because of uh, a little bit of planning goofiness by me, we're going to look at the third book in the second week and the second book in the third week. Well, it's not even easy for me to say, is it? And so you'll get Exodus next week, I promise. But this week, we're going to be looking at the third book of the Bible, which is what? Leviticus! Aren't you guys excited? <laughs> Pumped for some Leviticus? Absolutely you are. I have talked with people over the course of my years of ministry who have come to Leviticus in their Bible reading plan. And as they have gotten lost in the details of how the sacrifices are supposed to be prepared and how you are supposed to wash yourself if you have some sort of uh, skin infection, and what exactly a priest is supposed to do in order to cleanse themselves before they can go in to meet with God, they have said, I don't get it, and I'm not sure I'll ever read this book again. Maybe you've been in that place. It's helpful for us to acknowledge right off the bat, Leviticus is a hard read, isn't it? It's a hard read. 
But, but I think if we look at the grand picture of Leviticus, what we see is this beautiful movement that is a part of the Word of God, and we get a great glimpse at the gospel. I was going to start by outlining the book of Leviticus for you. And I realized as I was putting the outline together that the guys at the Bible Project really do a much better job than I ever could. And so let's take a few minutes and just watch them draw the outline of the book of Leviticus. Because it's weird. So let's fix that. Now remember, the story of the Bible began with humans in God's presence, but they were banished because of their rebellion. However, God wants to be in relationship with us, so he chooses one family that he will use to restore the world back into his presence. And so God's presence comes to dwell in a tent right in the middle of Israel. And that's great. But it creates a problem because it's so intense that Moses can't go in and other priests who enter inappropriately, they die. Well, wait, if God's presence is good, how is it all of a sudden dangerous for people? So think of it this way. God's presence is like the sun. It's pure power and goodness. And when something mortal and corruptible gets close to such pure power, it's destroyed. And so the word holiness is used in Leviticus to describe God's pure and powerful presence, which, like the sun, is both good and dangerous. So the point of Leviticus is to show how corrupt Israelites can live near God's goodness without being destroyed. Now, in the book, there are three ways for how this is all going to work out, and these are going to seem strange to you, but just hang in there with us. The first one is rituals. The second is this idea of the priesthood, and the third is a bunch of purity laws. Now, the book is broken up into seven sections, and each solution is explored in two sections of the book. The rituals are here, the priests are here, and the purity laws go here. Now, the first solution, rituals, involves a lot of animal sacrifices. And so Leviticus begins with detailed instructions for how to make these sacrifices. Some are ways of saying thank you to God, and others are simply ways of saying I'm sorry. And here at the end of the book, there are some more rituals. These are about observing sacred days and festivals. They're all celebrations that retell some part of the story of how God rescued Israel and set them apart from the nations. The second solution to the holiness problem has to do with priests. You see, being directly in God's presence is really dangerous. So he appoints priests as special representatives who can go into his presence on behalf of others. So in this section, we have a story about how the priests are ordained into the priesthood. And then this other section explains the set of higher standards that the priests have to live by because they work so closely to God's presence. The third solution in the book is all about purity laws. And this is by far the hardest thing to understand. For example, in this section, we're really concerned with knowing whether you're clean or unclean. Or another way of saying that is being pure and impure. And here's what we need to know to understand this. When you're in a pure state, you can be near God's presence. When you're in an impure state, you can't. And so it was really important for Israelites to know what state they're in at any given moment. So the first thing we have is a list of pure and impure animals. Yeah, this list of animals is divided up by where they live. So on the land, in the sea, in the air. And the text is just not clear about why certain animals are impure or why touching or eating them makes you impure. What is clear, however, is that avoiding these creatures will set Israel apart and it will remind them that God's own holiness should affect every part of their lives, including what they eat. 
After the food laws, we get a lot of random rules uh, about things like skin disease, touching dead bodies, what to do with bodily fluids. But they're not random. All of these are things that the Israelites associated with life and death, which are sacred things because God is the author of life. Okay, but simply coming into contact with these things makes you impure? They do, but we have to keep in mind that it's not wrong or sinful to be ritually impure. You just wait a few days, take a bath, offer sacrifice, and you're pure again. What is inappropriate is entering into God's presence when you're in an impure state. Now, there's more purity laws over here in this section. Yeah, these focus on Israel's moral behavior. So these are laws about social justice, healthy relationships, having sexual integrity. Living by these laws will make Israel into a morally pure people who can live near God's presence. Those are the three solutions. Now, you've probably noticed that they surround the very center of this book. And it's here that we find a really important ritual called the Day of Atonement. Yeah, so Israel's a big tribe now, and odds are there's a lot of sin happening that goes unnoticed that people are not dealing with. And so one time a year, the priests would take two goats, and one of those goats is killed, and its blood is carried right into God's presence where it symbolically covers or atones for Israel's sin. Yeah, that's kind of weird. Well, the meaning of the sacrifice, it's explained in the next chapter, where God says that the blood of a creature is its life. And so this goat's life is offered as a substitute. It's receiving God's punishment for Israel's sin so that the people don't have to. That leaves the second goat. Yeah, the priest puts his hands on it, and then he confesses all the sins of Israel. It's like he's placing the sins on the goat. And then that goat gets cast out forever into the wilderness. It's called the scapegoat. Yeah, I've heard that word before. Yeah, it's this very powerful image of how God is graciously removing Israel's sin. But let's be honest, sacrifices in general seem so barbaric. We have to remember that in the ancient world, sacrifices were the main way of buying favor from the gods. But the problem was that those same gods, they're unpredictable, they're fickle, you never know if they're gonna ignore you or they're gonna turn on you. And so it's in this cultural setting that we see Israel's God as totally different. He does get angry about human corruption, but it is never arbitrary and he loves people. So he provides this clear way for Israel to know with confidence that they are forgiven and that despite their corruption, they are safe to live near his presence. And so that makes the book of Leviticus actually a revolutionary statement in its day. So that's Leviticus. But Israel's still at Mount Sinai in the middle of the wilderness. They need a place to live. Yes, the land God promised to Abraham. And so the journey to that land is what the next book of the Bible is all about. Hi, this is... And you're going to have to wait a couple of weeks in order for us to get to that. It's a really good outline of the book of Leviticus. But... As we are reading Leviticus as a part of our Bible reading plans, or maybe we just turned there for fun one day, it still leaves us with the question as we are reading about those sacrifices, all of those rules and rituals, do I have to do them? Do the rules and ceremonies in Leviticus apply to me as a follower of Jesus Christ? Jesus said this about the rules. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. 
How many times have the heavens and the earth passed away while you've been alive? Right? How many times have the heavens and the earth passed away? They are constant. And so what is Jesus saying about the law of God? The Old Testament law of God is constant, even down to its smallest part. So as we read that, the natural question that then I should ask you is, why are you breaking so much of it this morning? Uh, Leviticus 19, 19. Do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. How many are disobedient to that right now as you sit there? Yep. Leviticus 19, 27. Do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. How many do I see who are being disobedient to that right now? Right, ladies, stop clipping the edges of your beards. How many of you have eaten, uh, you know, sausage or bacon this weekend? How many of you did any work yesterday on the Sabbath? Why don't we observe these things? If Jesus said that even the smallest part of the law will never pass away. Better yet, why are there sections of the New Testament that indicate that the rule of law is done in our life. Passages like Galatians 2 and 3, Romans 6 and 7, Colossians 2 and 3, all indicate that the law is not functioning for us as believers. Galatians 3, for example, says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian. How does Jesus say the law is still in effect down to the smallest possible part and at the same time we recognize we are not under the guardianship of the law that has come to an end? I believe the answer is there are functions of the Old Testament law that no longer apply to us if we are followers of Jesus Christ. And there are functions of the Old Testament law that will always apply to us. Now, where, where would we learn which functions of the Old Testament law apply to us and which ones don't? In the New Testament, of course, right? We are those who are a part of the New Covenant. And so where would we find out how we are to apply the Old Testament law to our lives? within the framework of the New Testament. And I want to start by talking about three ways that the Old Testament law and that law found in the book of Leviticus are not functioning in your life if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Right? The first one of these is this. The law divided the nation of Israel from the Gentiles around them. One of the reasons for the giving of the law was to create a clear distinction between the nation of Israel and all of the pagan Gentiles around them. Uh, Leviticus 20, 23, And you shall not walk in the customs of the nations that I am driving out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. Three verses later, You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy, and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. One of the reasons that the law existed that we read within the Old Testament was to separate a Jewish nation out from among a Gentile group of nations. Laws about diet, earrings, haircuts, tattoos, all were meant to try and provide clarity that these are my people over here in this nation. 
do these laws still function for us as believers in Jesus Christ? No. You are not a Jew living in a promised land within a national theocracy. You are not old covenant people. And so, when someone commits certain sins, we don't all have to pick up a stone in order to stone them as Leviticus demands. And so we are free to wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. Or, as Peter found out in Acts chapter 10, we are free to eat anything that God has made. Especially bacon, right? Jesus says this about this division the law was meant to create between Jew and Gentile. In Ephesians chapter 2, For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one, Jew and Gentile, both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility God has broken down the aspects of the law that were designed to separate Jew from Gentile. And as we saw two weeks ago, his design now for the body of Christ is that we would all be united and one under the banner of the cross. That is his design for us. Are are we as people still supposed to stand out and be distinct from the world around us? Yeah, we are. But the New Testament makes it clear We are not distinct from the world around us by the keeping of the Old Testament law, but by the character of Christ that is produced in us that we call the fruit of the Spirit. That's what makes us distinct from the world around us. And so this aspect of the Old Testament law that separated Jew from Gentile is not functioning in your life today. A second aspect that is not functioning, the law foreshadowed Christ the Day of Atonement, the Sacrificial System, the Passover. Each of these were pictures that were meant to communicate to us about a coming sacrificial lamb that would be given for the sake of sin. They're pictures that are meant to communicate to us about a great high priest who would come one day and mediate between God and people. They were all fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, Hebrews chapter 7 verse 27 says, He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. We have no need to participate in these parts of the law that were foreshadowing of the coming Christ because Christ has come and the shadow has given way to the real. And now we look back, having experienced the real, in remembrance of Him. And so this aspect of the law that is meant to foreshadow Christ and foreshadow the gospel is no longer active in our lives because Christ is no longer to come. He has come and purchased our salvation. The third way that the law function that is no longer active in your life as a believer is that it condemns the sinner as guilty. The the Old Testament law condemns, holds the sinner condemned as guilty. James chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. 
For, for he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. All of us have sinned. We have all broken the Old Testament law. What is the best summary of the Old Testament law? Right? Some of you know this. Jesus said it. Right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We recognize that there are so many days where that has not been what has taken place in my life. I have not loved God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I have not loved my neighbor as myself. And so I was condemned by the Old Testament law. Now as a believer who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, are you still condemned by the Old Testament law? Does Romans 8 have something to say about this? What does Romans 8 say? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned, condemned sin in the flesh. The law was active in condemning us because of our sin, but because of the work of Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, is this active in your life any longer? No, you are no longer under the thumb of sin. You are no longer held condemned because of what Jesus has done on your behalf. Now, friends, there is an enemy that is whispering condemnation into your life. The Bible says there is an enemy that is whispering condemnation into your life about sins that you have committed into your past or sins that have been committed against you in the past. And that enemy is condemning, condemning about things that have been taken care of by the cross of Christ condemning about things that you have confessed, that you have repented of. And that is why we need to do exactly what Jason talked about up here, but when he introduced that song, we need to rehearse the gospel. Say it again and again in our minds and our hearts because the gospel is because of Jesus, there isn't any more condemnation. Right? We battle that whispering of the enemy with the gospel of Jesus Christ, reminding ourselves day in and day out of the truth of his word. And so these three areas are areas where the law is no longer functional in your life if you are a believer of Jesus, in Jesus Christ. The law no longer functions to separate Jew from Gentile. Right? The law no longer functions in order to foreshadow Christ, he has come. The law no longer functions in order to declare you guilty because Christ has taken care of that. So what do we do then with this book of Leviticus, with the entire Old Testament law, with the entire left side of our Bibles? If this no longer functions in my life, why would I ever open that half? Do I just ignore it? Am I done with it? The answer to that is no, because I want to give you two ways in which the Old Testament law and what we see in the book of Leviticus is absolutely functioning in your life as a believer in Jesus Christ. And these two ways are totally tied together. Uh, they, they are sewn together. The first is this. The law convicts our conscience of sin. The law convicts our conscience of sin. One of the purposes of the law is to make me aware 
that, that I'm sinful and that I need salvation somehow and, and to point me to my need for salvation. Romans chapter 7, verse 7. What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But when the law teaches me what holy living is, that's when I recognize, oh, I'm not doing that. No. Romans chapter 3, verse 20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. When I was four, five, six years old, my parents taught me that I was to love my neighbor as myself. And they specifically emphasized that that was to be true of my younger sister. Right? Love your neighbor as yourself and you better start with Michelle, who is smaller than you and needs you to care for her and to love her well. And I became aware, as I lived day in and day out with my younger sister, that perhaps I was not loving her as I loved myself. Uh, that, that there were times I was mistreating her, that there were times my little sister annoyed me. And in frustration, I totally mistreated her and acted in selfishness rather than love. Maybe you had that kind of relationship with a sibling at one point. And because of that, I was convicted at the age of five, six, seven years old that, that I was sinful. And I needed some sort of salvation in my life because I knew I was supposed to love my sister well, and yet day in and day out, I wasn't always doing it. Now, where does that idea of loving your neighbor as yourself come from? It comes from the book of Leviticus, doesn't it? Isn't that where it appears? It's Leviticus that teaches us that we're to love our neighbor as ourself. And that Old Testament law, love God, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, holds us in conviction when we do things wrong. It shows us that we need a Savior. But the Holy Spirit's conviction doesn't stop when I place my faith in Jesus. He continued to use the law in order to show me areas where I need God's grace and need his transforming power in my life as a follower of Jesus. And as we're about to see, God's Spirit wants to use the principles in these Old Testament passages to continue to speak to us about our need for a Savior and our brokenness. Now, you guys, how do I know the difference between the condemnation that, the, that Satan is whispering and the conviction that God's Holy Spirit is bringing into my life. Because they both kind of make me feel bad. They, they both call attention to something I've done wrong and kind of make me feel bad. How do I know the difference between Satan whispering condemnation and the Holy Spirit bringing conviction? I, I think the distinction is entirely about whether or not I've dealt with my sin. If I have confessed my sin before the Lord, if I've repented of whatever I needed, need to repent of, that sin is done. My relationship with my God is restored fully in intimacy. It is over, and he doesn't want me to be looking at that sin over and over again. That's Satan's business to bring that back before you. 
and to bring condemnation on you for sins that are in the past and have been taken care of by Jesus. But if I am currently living in my sin, if I have not dealt with my sin, then that is the Spirit's conviction that comes into my life and says, hey, you need to take care of that. Hey, you need to go a different way. Satan has no desire for me to deal with sin I'm currently living in. He wants me to continue to live in it. That's the Spirit's job. And the Spirit has no desire to bring up sins that have been dealt with at the cross and have been confessed and are behind me. That's Satan's job. And so whether it's Satan's condemnation or the Spirit's conviction depends entirely on whether or not I've dealt with that sin. Right? That is active in your life as a believer. The Spirit uses the principles of the law, to convict our conscience of sin. Lastly, the law convicts our conscience of sin. And believer, the law is still very active in your life, teaching you about God and people. That's the primary meaning of Torah. It is the teacher. And it teaches us about who God is. It teaches us about what He's done. 2 Timothy 3 may be familiar to you. It says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What Scripture is Paul referring to here? All Scripture. And since portions of the New Testament hadn't yet been written, mainly the Old Testament is what he has in mind here. That is the guide for how you are to live. Wait a minute. So you're telling me that the Old Testament law, as found in places like Leviticus, is my teacher. Does that mean I'm supposed to be following each and every one of these rules? Keeping every ceremony and festival? Is that what you're supposed to be doing? Is that what I'm supposed to be doing? The answer to that question is yes. You are supposed to be doing that if you're under the Old Covenant. If you're under the Old Covenant and you live in a theocratic nation within a promised land that has land blessings and cursings, then by all means, you need to be living according to these things, these rules and ceremonies. But that is not you. Christ has come and there is a new covenant and so the rules and festivals that we see here no longer need to be lived out in our life. Passages like Galatians 2 and 3 and Romans 6 and 7 tell us that the rule has come to an end. The rule of the Old Testament law has come to an end in our life. So if the rule has come to an end, then how in the world is the Old Testament law teacher for us? And the answer to that is, the principles out of which those rules flow are still very active in teaching us about who God is, who we are, and how we are to relate to Him. When we interact with God's commands, we always do so at three levels. Did you know that? We do so at the level of rule, principle, and relationship. I even have a cute web up here. Right? Rules, principle, and relationship. The rules flow out of a principle. The principles flow out of relationship and the character of God. 
And so to give you an illustration that hopefully will make this a little more concrete, this same thing is true in the way that I parented my kids when they were little. There were rules. We lived by a busy street and we had a very firm rule. You are not allowed to cross the busy street by yourself. That was a rule in our house. That flowed out of a principle. Don't take unnecessary risks where you could get hurt or die. Right? As, as a parent, I, I care about you. I, I prefer you not wind up flattened on the road. Right? There's a principle driving that rule. And that principle flows out of relationship. I love you and I want what is best for you. Now, does the rule still apply to my 22- and 20-year-old children? No. They cross busy streets without their parents all the time now. Right? My son does not allow me, my 20-year-old son does not allow me to come and hold his hand as we cross the street together. My 22-year-old daughter might, but my 20-year-old son will not allow for that. The rule no longer applies, but the principle that I don't want them risking their lives in harm still exists as a parent. And it flows out of a relationship and my character that I love them and want what is best for them that will never change. And the same is true with the Old Testament rules that we see. Let's just use one of the Ten Commandments as an example. Uh, the commandment to keep a Sabbath. There is a rule. Set aside the last day of the week for worshiping and not working as a community together. That is the rule. That flows out of a principle. God wants his people to dedicate time to being with him. We see Jesus talk about that principle in Luke chapter 10, don't we? When he's at the home of Mary and Martha and he says, no, 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 the one great thing is what Mary is doing. She's being with me. She's being with me. That's the principle. And that flows out of relationship. God loves you. And because he loves you, he wants to spend time with you. God loves you. And because he loves you, he knows he made you to rest. And so he wants what's best for you. And God wants you to love him. And he knows that means setting aside other things in order to dedicate your time to him. The rule flows out of that principle, which flows out of relationship. Now, there are certain rules and principles that are really hard to tear apart, right? Uh, not murdering is one of those. Really difficult to tear the rule and principle apart. But as we look at this, as we look at not murdering, we recognize there is actually a larger principle about God's authority over life and the sanctity of life that's bigger than just the specific rule here. And so we're interacting all the time on these three levels. For us as believers, the rule no longer applies. Romans chapter 14, 5 and 6. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. What? Fully convinced in his own mind? This is one of the Ten Commandments. What do you mean fully convinced in his own mind? Right? Paul is saying you need to figure out how to apply the principle about sacred time with God when the rule no longer applies to you as new covenant believers. When we look at the Old Testament law, it isn't that we should just ignore all of the laws and the festivals and the ceremonies. 
It is that we are to understand those rules, festivals, and ceremonies no longer apply to us according to the rule of law. But the principles and the relationship that those principles flow out of are fundamental teachers for us in our lives. As I was going through the book of Leviticus, uh, I just wanted to point out five principles that I see here. And I'm going to move through these pretty quick. Uh, Five principles that I think are so exciting within the book of Leviticus. And the first is this. God is holy and he calls us to be holy. Leviticus 11, and be holy for I am holy. Leviticus 19, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus 20, you shall be holy to me for I, the Lord, am holy. Do you get the idea that God is holy? He's pure. He's righteous. Totally and completely perfect. The whole reason that people were not allowed to go before God in an impure, in an impure way is that he's holy and he wanted to communicate. No uncleanliness can come into my presence. And God wants his people to be holy. That's why he gave him the law. He's like, if you guys will keep every part of this law that I am giving you, you will be holy. You'll be set apart from the other nations. You'll be like me in your character if you keep every part of the law. God has designed me to be holy as he is holy. Which really brings me to the second point. We are not holy. God says, you guys, I want you to keep this law. And within the framework, he builds in what they're going to do when they don't. Right? He says, the burnt offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering, the day of atonement. I am giving you what you're going to do in order to seek forgiveness, because even though I would love for you to follow the law perfectly, I know you won't. Even though you're commanded to be holy as I am holy, I know you're not going to be. And you need sacrifice on your behalf if you're going to be in my presence. Every one of these offerings that we read about in the early part of Leviticus is about forgiveness of sins because we are not holy Which brings me to the third part. God is good and provides a way of salvation. If you guys read the the list of feasts and festivals, in Leviticus 23 through 25, all of those festivals and feasts are meant to be about the goodness and provision and victory of God. You're reading about the, the Feast of First Fruits or Pentecost or Unleavened Bread or the Festival of Tents or Trumpets and on and on. They're all about God's goodness and his provision and his ultimate victory. And we're just reminded, wow, God, you are good in all of these things. Look at how you provide for your people. And his ultimate provision is seen in the first ceremony listed in that section, Passover. A time when God's wrath did not fall upon his people because of the blood of a lamb. It is a reminder to us of that ultimate blood of the Lamb that keeps God's wrath from falling upon us. And we cannot help but read with tears in our eyes as we come to the last festival or the last um, section of that Leviticus 23 through 25, the year of Jubilee, right? A year in which uh, all slaves were to be set free, a year in which all debts were to be canceled. And as we read through that, we are reminded of Jesus' great work in order to cancel all of our debts. 
in order to set us free from our slavery to sin. What good news there is in all of these things because God is good and provides a way of salvation. But Leviticus actually gets into the details of how he does this. And so we see that God has provided salvation through substitutionary atonement. We see that right there in Leviticus. You saw in that summary that the Bible Project gave to us that in the middle of the book, dead at its center is the Day of Atonement, where one goat was sacrificed as a symbolic sacrifice on behalf of the people. They were sinful. They deserved death. But instead, that goat got it instead. And then the second goat, the scapegoat, had the sins of the people ceremonially placed on its head and wandered off into the wilderness to never be seen again. When we put these goats together, we get a complete picture of the atonement of Jesus Christ in our life. He is that substitutionary sacrifice that was made on our behalf. He took our sins and our punishment so that we didn't have to. And now because of that, our sins have been removed from us and they cannot return to us. God's atonement comes through the substitution in Leviticus of goats, but they just looked forward to the ultimate sacrifice that was to come on our behalf. And finally, we see that relationship with God comes through a mediator in the book of Leviticus. There is a chunk of Leviticus that is about the role of priests, how they are to be selected, how they are to function, how they are to be kept clean. They are a key bridge between God's unholy Old Covenant community and a holy God. They were to represent God to the people and the people to God, allowing there to be a bridge between God and people. That that was the role. And in Leviticus 8 and 9, that Levitical priesthood, that Aaronic priesthood is introduced, and no sooner is it introduced then we see it crumble in Leviticus 10 as Aaron's sons pervert the priesthood and it's really just a portent of how the Levitical priesthood is going to fail to be the mediators God intended between him and people. But Jesus came as the ultimate and perfect priest to represent God to people and people to God. The priesthood of Aaron turned into a mess and failed to live out its commission as mediators, but Jesus did it perfectly. What does Hebrews 4 tell us? That we have a great high priest. What does 1 Timothy 2.5 say? That there is one mediator between God and man, right? The man, Christ Jesus. He is our great mediator. He is our great priest. And where the Levitical priesthood failed, he has succeeded in every way. Leviticus helps us to see the gospel. Isn't that what this is? Right? Leviticus helps us to see the gospel 1,500 years before Jesus would come and atone for our sins. Do, do I have to keep the Day of Atonement? Do I need to... Do we need to have Levitical priests? No, none of those rules of law apply to us. But the principles that they give to us are so important in understanding who God is, who we are, and how we relate to Him. 
When we read the book of Leviticus, we read it as those who have been set free from the rule of law, but can bask in the beauty of the principles it teaches us about God and His plan to save us. And we want to do it every time we enter into this holy book together. Would you guys pray with me? We're going to take our offering here in a minute as an expression of our love for God. Uh, But I just invite you to pray with me and give God thanks for this amazing work that He has done that is pictured in the book of Leviticus. Father, as we come before you today, we recognize the goodness of the gospel, that it is good news, and that you have foreshadowed all of this good news in the book of Leviticus. That as we read through its pages, we see amazing principles about your heart, about who we are as people, and about how you want to save us from our sins. Lord, we we thank you for that, and we pray that we would be people who live in the grace that we see in this book. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me as we take our offering and worship our God together?